The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Richard Manning, is an award-winning journalist and the author of nine books, including Against the Grain and One Round River. His work has appeared in Best American Science and Nature Writing, Harper's, The New York Times, and The Los Angeles Times. Richard Manning is here today on Health Watch to talk about his latest book, co-authored with Dr. John Rady, Go Wild, Free Your Body and Mind from the Afflictions of Civilization. Welcome to Health Watch, Richard Manning. Well, thanks very much for having me. So uh, let's explain to our listeners what you mean by going wild. Uh, when I hear the, the term affliction and civilization together, I, I wonder about that juxtaposition because the first thing that comes to mind to me is in- increased sanitation or reduction of infectious disease or lower infant mortality. So what, what are you talking about with regards to going wild and, and the downsides of civilization? Sure. And all of those things are true and things we should keep in mind, especially the, the, the increased longevity to things like sanitation and infectious diseases. And, and, but it turns out there's a downside of that as well. But let's, let's predate that a little bit. So if we talk about increased sanitation, that's mid-19th century. But early 19th century, um, some physicians started keeping track of things as European culture made some inroads into so-called primitive cultures or places weren't didn't have the benefit of a Western diet yet. And they started keeping track of, of an issue called diseases of civilization. And basically, they found out that people, for instance, didn't have cancer at all, not and no real record of it before a Western diet showed up, before things like wheat and sugar showed up in people's diets. And, and that was true the world over, and it was true of a lot more things than just cancer. Diabetes, heart disease, dental cavities, all those things arrived, and people didn't have those before. And so what I'm really doing in, in the new book is keeping track of that and looking at diseases of civilization and that well-documented record now over two, almost two centuries, or I'm sorry, yeah, almost two centuries worth, of saying, you know, there's down, downsides to the civilization. And in Go Wild, you talk about some misconceptions about evolution around a lot of people believing it's a sort of a steady uh, progress forward. And, and in Go Wild, you argue that it, that's not actually true and that, in, in fact, we haven't evolved that much genetically from 40,000, 50,000 years ago. Yeah, and, and that's true of almost any species we can name, but especially humans, because we're long-lived and we, we reproduce pretty slowly, so it takes a long time for us to change substantially. But the, the evolution tends to work in fits and starts. I mean, it's not a gradual process. I mean, it's always happening, but there's not a lot of change. And in terms of, of the evolution of humans, we think of that as coming about gradually over a couple million years, and you really can make that case, but you can make that same case with a bunch of other species of upright apes, uh, Neanderthals, for instance, which we know quite a bit about. But the thing is that humans really appeared on the scene in the characteristics we have today about 50,000 years ago, and those characteristics came together almost all at once, like a, like a, um, a complete package, as it were. 
And not only did it come together all at once, it wiped out all those other species of upright apes. There were four or five of them about the time we came along as humans, and all of a sudden there was one left standing. So something pretty dramatic happened. And that dramatic thing was our design as humans, and we really haven't changed all that much. Yeah, we can excite, cite some examples of change, but basically we're the same guy that, that, that existed 50,000 years ago. And some of the notable examples being, uh, uh, notable exceptions being, are some people gaining a tolerance for eating dairy products, for instance, which didn't exist 50,000 years ago, but now exists in, in a minority of, of populations today. Yeah, exactly so. And that's the example that's all recited, but that's a really interesting one. Um, for First of all, it, it did exist 50,000 years ago, but it existed in infants. So the gene was there for that, and, and, but in adults it got turned off. So infant could, infants, being mammals, had to be able to tolerate milk. But as they aged, they lost that ability. But as, as milk came into our diets with domestication, then it was to our advantage, and we, we got that trick. But that's a, a single gene trick, probably. There's probably not very much going on, and that's one of those happy accidents that we were able to, to tolerate milk, and a lot of people do now. So, so Richard, tell us a little bit about uh, what you're arguing for in, in Go Wild nutritionally. Uh, I gather that you, you believe that, that the diet of humans has changed dramatically, but our genetic code hasn't, and it's created a mismatch that uh, is causing these diseases of civilization. Yeah, absolutely. And, and another way to say civilization is domestication, by which we mean domestication of a few plants. And that was the, that was the rise of agriculture, and uh, basically uh, four or five times around the globe in the history of humans, people domesticated grasses. Those grasses are corn, wheat, and rice. And if we, we take those three grasses today and look at them, and, and they're, they're botanical freaks. They're very rare in nature. But if we look at them now, they're not rare at all, and they provide something like three-quarters of human nutrition. Um, and before domestication, which was only six, 7,000 years ago, it really happened 10, but not many people ate grasses until six or 5,000 years ago. And before then, those, they, 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 they were maybe 1% of our diet. Now they're 80% of our diet. That's a radical change. That's probably as radical as humans have ever undergone. And if we look at that one single fact and the dense carbohydrates that, that allows us to have through those grasses, but also domesticated plants like sugars and all our sugars, um, those things are really responsible for the diseases of civilization. Yeah, we talk about a lot of things in the book as being contrary to our evolutionary pathway, our design. But if we look at our diet, that really, that really describes a lot of them right off the bat. So um, tell us a little bit about what we would be eating to replace some of the 80% that is now rice, wheat, and corn, and potatoes. Yeah, it, it's what we did eat, too. And, and so before... Um, before domestication, it, it was simply going back to that diet, what we evolved to eat, what our, our system has evolved to tolerate. And so we, we get a lot of calories from those carbohydrates now, so we need another source of calories, that raw energy that keeps us going and, and, and cooking along every day that allows our muscles to move. Most of that um, in, in pre 
agriculture came from fat. We ate a whole lot of fat, and we got a lot of that from meat, but a few other sources as well. And that's what's, it's not really declined in our diet, but that's what we need to replace the carbohydrates with, um, eat the fat. But beyond that, we ate a much larger variety of things. Um, for instance, um, doing some sampling of the stomach contents, you know, periodically we read about these guys they find frozen in a glacier and they've been there for 10,000 years. When they do those guys and they find somebody like that, they'll commonly find things like 40 species of plants in that person's stomach. 40 species as opposed to the two or three that we eat today. And, and those are rich sources of micronutrients, the things that we're lacking today, um, this kind of unimaginably long list of phytochemicals and things that support things like brain health and antioxidation, a number of issues there. So that variety is really important. Fats are really important. Um, people, when they talk about a low-carbohydrate diet, they say, well, you're eating a high-protein diet. Well, not really. We, you probably don't eat, need to eat much more meat or whatever protein source you have than you're eating right now. What you do need to do is get rid of the carbohydrates, assuming you are eating a normal American diet. And that wouldn't include the carbohydrates in, in a lot of vegetables and fruit, would it? No, and those are very low. I mean, uh, typically they'll be, uh, you can eat uh, fruits and vegetables all day, all day long and not get the number of carbohydrates that you would get in, say, eating a bagel. Um, so they're very low in carbohydrates, and those carbohydrates are wrapped up in fiber, and, and that's another important factor. So it's, it, they're, they're doled out very slowly in your digestive system as opposed to, say, a glass of fruit juice, which gives you an instant shot of sugar, and your body is just not geared to, to tolerate that. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Richard Manning, the co-author of Go Wild, Free Your Body and Mind from the Afflictions of Civilization. So, Richard, if, if eating a diet that uh, matches our genetic uh, code pre-agriculture, so a diet that's primarily meat and vegetables and a little bit of fruit, is the way to go to, to confront cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, and other afflictions that are on the rise. How do you reconcile that with, with uh, some of the epidemiological studies that show the more vegetarian you are, the less likely you're going to be obese, the lower incidence of high blood pressure and cholesterol, high cholesterol? It seems like there's so much conflicting research that somebody can find what they want to find in a lot of these nutritional studies. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and and you'll find that no matter where you go in this area, and at some point you're going to have to to, to decide. Well, there there's some things I'm not going to include in my evidence base, but well, uh, the way I'll do that is talk about the quality of our meat today. So people who are, those studies invariably look at people who are eating a meat diet as you would find it at McDonald's or at the supermarket. The real problem with that is most of our meat sources. Uh, Poultry, swine, uh, beef, especially, are raising feedlots. And those, and if you, if I was talking about the problem with the high carbohydrate diet, well, it's exactly the same for the cattle in a feedlot. They're eat, they're being fed the exact same corn. They're being fed antibiotics. The qual, and we know this that the, the quality of the fat is very different. So the feedlot beef, for instance, is very high in omega six fats. It's low in omega threes. Where grass fed beef or even wild game very high in omega-3 fats. 
So we need to talk about the quality of the protein that we do have and think about things like very high-quality sources like salmon, for instance, um, cold-water fish, those things. The wild-caught things tend to be a lot better for us. So we really haven't, we don't have a final word on those things if those studies are based on things like feedlot beef, and they are. So when we look at uh, pre-agricultural societies, we're really looking at a planet that had a significantly lower population. So I would imagine the rise of agriculture probably allowed us to have a more dense population on the planet. But wouldn't it be a disastrous uh, situation, given that meat-eating is actually one of the major causes of global warming and that our fisheries are mainly on, on the precipice of collapse in many cases to encourage everybody to potentially be focusing more on meat consumption? Yeah, it, it would be if we all switched at once. But the, the, the real issue there is, is population and what level can, can the globe carry? How many humans can the planet support and support them uh, in good health and still be sustainable? We are obviously way beyond that number. And so to, to say, well, we'll go on and deplete our health now further to support more people, I think is backwards. We need to think of ways that we can back out of the agricultural system, not continue in it, and uh, design a post-agricultural system, if you will, that can feed the people the diet they need and be sustainable and help reduce population. Part of that is indeed agriculture, because there are things that happen on an agricultural diet that increases population. For instance, the birth rate um, is highest among the world's poorest people. One of the reasons it's highest is because their diet is so bad. And, and there are all sorts of evolutionary reasons why that's true, but it's really interesting that, that, um, that the fertility rate among people with bad diets tends to be higher, and if we can give them a better diet, we can decrease that fertility rate. We certainly can by decreasing poverty. So the real problem here is, is poverty and those issues, and those are the things that we need to back out of. So I don't accept the whole thing, well, okay, we got a lot of people here, we, we need to do more agriculture to feed them. That's a recipe for destroying humanity and the planet at the same time. Well, let's talk about some of your thoughts on exercise and movement. You have a lot of Go Wild dedicated to that. Can you, can you talk about what is, is unique about Go Wild in this, in this area? Yeah, and that's a really important area, and I'm glad we're switching to that because we do tend to talk a lot about food, but these other areas I think are just as important and they complement each other. But the other thing that went on, we know this, is that hunter-gatherer people before civilization and the ones that still exist are much, much more active than we are. And they tend to do things like five, six, seven, eight miles a day of running or the equivalent of that. And, and that's probably not an accident. And if we, what we do in the book is look at that in evolutionary terms, especially as it supports brain development. And we're really big on brain development, what goes on. And we think that one of the reasons humans' brains function the way they do, and that we're so bright, and we are really very, we have unique brains among all species, that's obvious. But how obvious or how important that is really becomes much, much more interesting when you look at evolution. Um, what supports those brains is movement in a huge way. And we can look at the, at, at the actual chemistry of this Every time you exercise, your body 
produces a chemical called BDNF, or a brain-derived neurotropic factor. And that floods the brain and stimulates growth of brain cells. And that's true in almost any animal we can name, that the more intricate the movement, the, the more the requirements on the brain. And so it would follow that evolution would have a way of stimulating brain growth to support that movement, and it works both ways. So the more you move, the more you exercise, the better your brain can be in some ways. And we think that's vitally important and an important message from evolution. And not only that, the nutritional benefits we're talking about in general health and improving your health come about from exercise as well as getting your diet right. Those things work together in very profound ways. Well, it's interesting how you cited some research on sedentary lifestyle actually reducing a person's cognitive skills. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that research is pretty fascinating stuff. And the one paper that we cite in there is actually a paper that looks at all the research. So there were, it was done by the Mayo Clinic. It's not like it came out of um, any unusual place. It was mainstream science. And they looked at 1,600 papers, if I remember the number correctly here, 1,600 papers of people who had looked at cognitive ability and exercise, the relationship between the two. And specifically, they were looking at Alzheimer's and dementia. And they found a positive effect from exercise in reducing Alzheimer's or dementia or in curing it once it happened. So in both reducing the incidence of and curing it once it happened in all those papers. So it's, it's not like one study says, it's 1,600 papers say that we can really do a lot. Um, same is true in depression, that we now have very good peer-reviewed science saying you do almost as well, probably better, with exercise curing depression than you do with medication. So that's telling us that, that that deep connection between exercise and the brain is really pretty important, and we ought to take advantage of it to make ourselves better. Another really interesting part of the book is is your discussion of empathy as a defining trait for the human species because of what you call mirror neurons and, and the way mirror neurons uh, drive the way our consciousness is developed. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that was a fascinating thing, and, and it's something that is emerging from evolutionary science, especially in some fascinating ways. And as, as the evolutionary biologists take a look at humans and what, what made us who we are, and if we look at the initial research in that and, and the thinking about that that goes back to the 19th century, people will immediately say things like, well, we, we had these great opposable thumbs, we had a big brain, we could use tools, we could hunt. That's what made us humans. Well, that's partly true. But a lot of things come together to understand that really the bedrock human trait is empathy. It's our ability to get along with each other and, and work as, as cooperative units in society that far surpasses any other species. There's one very good evolutionary biologist who writes about this a lot, a woman named Sarah Hurdy. And she, she says something quite profound, I think, in one of her books that she said, well, if you put any other species on an airliner and sent them across the country, they'd all be dead by the other, by the other end of the trip, including you know, things like chimpanzees and gorillas, things closely related to us, because they can't get along the way we get along. And we're not dead. We get along. We're pretty grouchy at the other end, but we haven't killed each other. 
And, and I think that that's fascinating and it points to a unique ability. And if we look at it how it's mirrored in the brain, you know, things like doing calculus or um, learning a musical instrument take a lot of brain power. But empathy takes a lot more. And it's like all the parts of our brain have to work together to, to, to serve this need we have to get along with each other. I think that's a very important lesson. And it's interesting that among uh, various other species, our children are helpless for a much longer period of time than many other animals and require the cooperation of a larger group of people to, to support their development. Yeah, that's absolutely defining. And we would not have gotten to the point we are. We would not be a successful species if we didn't address that. So our, our children would die if they were left alone at, say, age one or age two, like most other mammals are left alone. And so you think about it, a deer is born, and that deer is independent within about six months. Our species are not independent until they're 18, 19. Some people today would say 35 years old. <laughs> but um, that, that places an enormous burden on our society and our people. So we have to cooperate. That's the reason we have to get along to raise those children. But that's bedrock evolutionary requirement. In other words, if you can't raise the next generation, you're not going to be a successful species. And so if we don't meet that requirement, we would have faded out a long time ago. That's pretty important stuff. So, so Richard, can you talk a little bit about uh, the section in Go Wild about biophilia? Uh, you, you mentioned some of the studies that uh, show the health benefits of going out into nature or having green space near your house or what in Japan it is called forest basking or forest bathing. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was a fascinating little journey we took in the book, thinking about that, because there, there are all these parallel um, aspects of this topic, things like sleep and food and nutrition and exercise and all that. But biophily was one that you wouldn't see coming, but if you think about it just a little bit, then it's obvious it should be there. It should be a, a very important topic in all of this because um, the evolutionary conditions we evolved in um, were wild. We were in nature. And the biophilia hypothesis comes from E.O. Wilson, the great conservation biologist, who said, well, if you're really attentive to nature and love nature and geared to observing everything that happens in nature, you'll be more successful. That's an evolutionary advantage. And so let's look deeply at that idea. <clears throat> well, he came up with the idea in the 90s, and people ever since have been looking at that idea with some really rigorous research and has suggested that there are enormous gains to be made by understanding that this is literally true, that if humans have contact with nature, they get better. Down to, um, for instance, they've done studies in hospitals and doing things as simple as giving people a view of the outdoors and a, a potted plant in the room. Those things literally have people recovering more rapidly from their surgery than people who don't have those things. And they've done this in control group studies. So that really tells us how important this is and how we need to be in contact with nature as opposed to our industrial society almost every day. Which might bring us back to the issue of, of population again if we're going to ultimately have wild spaces that are non-human spaces. 
Yeah, absolutely, because we come to treasure those spaces, and we understand that there are other things in this world, that, and, and that's part of the, our quality of life. And it's hugely important to us. It supports us. It supports us in really practical ways, like reducing crime. I mean, nobody wants to live in a crime-ridden place. And, and, and there are places that, that, that are exemplary in this regard. You're in one of them. Portland is a wonderful city for understanding that people need to have some contact with nature all the time. So Portland is officially ranked as what's called a biophilic city because of the steps taken there to keep people in touch with nature. You don't have to explain that to your, to your listeners. It really is part of the quality of life in that city. Well, I was just going to ask you about policy changes or individual changes that were suggested in Go Wild, and uh, apparently some of what Portland's doing may be part of those. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I just did an article for On Earth magazine. It's available online if people want to read it, I'm looking specifically at cities and the, the steps that cities can take. And they really pay off in other ways. For instance, I looked at the city of Milwaukee, and their, their effort to put greenways there also um, got rid of a stormwater problem for them. So, so they have ecosystem services that went beyond just serving humans, and it was like a double dip, a double bang for their buck. And now it's become part of their life there. I'm sure the same is true in Portland. And any other individual uh, solutions that you would f- yeah, mention we, for we our listeners? Of- we, we get specific in the book about what we have people do, and oddly enough, we do it in, in both of the authors' personal lives. So both, both John Rady, my, my co-author on this, and John's a psychiatrist and has been dealing with these issues for a very long time, both he and I decided we'd experiment on ourselves while we were writing this book. And so we tell readers exactly what we did and what the benefits were. They're pretty enormous in both cases and quite surprising to us because we thought we knew a lot about this stuff. But by putting it together, we got it. But it comes down to basically low-carbohydrate diet of some kind. Um, and people, are, you know, there are popular diets now like uh, the Zone or the Paleo diet. Certainly, those really get at it. We're not specific. It's, you got to do one or the other. It's like you got to join this particular church or that particular church. Just get it low carbohydrate and try to satisfy your own needs. Um, exercise, we're, we're, we're very big on exercise outdoors um, because that's the biophilia component kicking in. But we're also, um, we like variability in an exercise program. So, in other words, we don't, we're not real happy when somebody gets on a treadmill and runs a half hour every day. That's probably not a very good experience and that probably will make you unhealthy in the end. We're much happier if somebody goes and puts on some shoes and goes out in the rain or the wind or a nice sunny day and goes running up a mountain because of the variability involved. Um, and, and is the variability for, for brain stimulation? Yeah, for brain stimulation because to meet those challenges, but also to give you variety in movement, which we had through evolution. Um, if you're running on a treadmill, you're making the same footfall every single step of the way. That's a recipe for injury. And we want to see you moving your entire body and moving it in, um, in a variety of ways. So um, mountain running looks like a very good exercise to us, but so do things like CrossFit, but so do things like dance. We like dance a lot, and people who move rhythmically together are really exercising that empathy. And it's very good, it's very good exercise for both brain health but also um, things like empathy 
and and um, working your whole body. We want you to work your whole body, and we want you to take days off. Um, so uh, go work hard a couple days, and don't do anything at all for a day. Rest. Richard, um, un- unfortunately, we're out of time, but um, it was great having you on Health Watch today to talk about Go Wild. Oh, glad to do it. We are talking today with co-author Richard Manning about his latest book, Go Wild, Free Your Body and Mind from the Affliction of Civilization. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Mm-hmm.